Hey everybody, welcome to the next episode of the Strand Tennis Center podcast, filled with tips, advice, tennis, not tennis, just life advice too, whatever you need. Uh, like it on YouTube, share it on uh, the podcast as well. Thank you. You're right. Yeah. Are we, sure. are we ready? Maybe. Hello Maybe. everyone. Are we on? Welcome to the Strand Tennis Center Podcast, everybody. We are lucky. Don't make fun of me, Evan. Evan's smiling at me from behind. They always make fun of me. We are lucky to have everybody some guests on this month. And this is a friend I've known for a long time. But this podcast is about tennis, but also about business. We are lucky to have Lucas here. Lucas Kowalczyk, he is the owner and uh, founder of the Gravity Vault in New Jersey. But I'm going to let him introduce himself and get a little 360 of who he is when he started this whole thing, and how handsome he is as well, which is... Uh, <laughs> and when, when I had the pleasure of meeting the one and only, <laughs> the Keith Gabo. How, how long ago did we... How long ago was it? 2009 we met? 2009 I'd been in this building, yes. Yeah, so and I came in probably eight months after, was it? Yeah, within the first year. So within the first year. He came and took that one single court wedged in between yeah. a flower shop... <laughs> And a rock climbing gym. And it was, it was magical. It was magical. <laughs> that was the great story we said because nuns would come up at Pink Flowers and guys in the back were cursing like, motherfucker, piece of shit. And the nuns were like, this is very, very uncomfortable for me. They're picking up like roses and flowers for, for funerals for and funerals stuff. funerals and such, yeah. We got guys in the back cursing. It was a and really... large conveyor belts worth of It was a really uh, strange situation. Cycling through the place. As when I first came in here. But this was uh, my second gym. So I opened in 2005 in Upper South River. Yeah. So going back in time. 17 years ago. How the time flies. I Do you, we'll, we'll get into timelines. Do you have any funny stories like that work-wise? Like, is there anything that comes off the top of your head where somebody's just, like, some weird, like... Oh, from the beginning of time. I, I mean, the first landlord, as an example, when I went in to uh, rent a space, uh, the landlord asked me... Uh, I think it's a great idea, but can you tell me exactly how you're going to get the rocks from outside to inside the building? <laughs> so uh, asking how I was going to get the rocks inside was great. Uh, Having a banker take me to lunch and sit me down in a very um, uh, serious fashion, almost as if he was trying to uh, educate me and or you know do me a favor, said, I, I really like you as a person, and I just have to tell you that uh, there's no way we can let you borrow the money <laughs> because... Uh, it's just it, it, it's it's not sustainable. This isn't this isn't going to work out. We 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 as a bank and I won't name the bank think it's really more of a fad. Maybe what this climbing thing is. Um, so uh, you know, over the course of time, I started out uh, as a uh, carny. Uh, so the first gym I opened in the state of New Jersey had me uh, register for a ride license, a ride operator license, because no governing body existed in the United States to oversee climbing as a what sport. What is a ride operating like? What is uh, that, like so circus? Think, yeah. Think about, like, when, when the, only, the, only, the, only, the only people operating climbing walls were people that were basically going from town to town with a oh, like carnivals. portable walls, oh. carnival-like. So you had to have inspections. You had to have a ride operator. You had to have oh. a license that they did a background check on you, that you weren't a criminal, of, you know, and that you were basically operating. They considered it a ride. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a sport. It wasn't a gym. We were a climbing, you know, amusement is huh. basically what we got categorized by the Department of Community Affairs in the state of New Jersey. So it took almost a year, first year, year and a half, until they started entering into some other climbing facilities. Our town effectively blew the whistle on us to the, to the Department of Community Affairs because they were like, we don't know what you're building here, and we don't want to be responsible for it falling down and killing people, so we need to go to somebody. We have to check this, so uh, we had to provide the engineering then to the Department of Community Affairs. Yeah. Long story short, 
fast forward, I went through uh, a lot of iterations with the Department of Community Affairs to come out from underneath them. That is really like, listen, we have a tennis business, right? Tennis has been around for hundreds of years, right? So when you decide to open up a rock climbing gym, was there any, one, was there any indoor gym ever in New Jersey at all? There was, but there was very far and few in between. There were usually add-ons. Like the okay. first one in New Jersey was an add-on to a gymnastic studio because okay. gymnasts found it for strength training to be something, you know, fun, cool. The for like lifetime with a wall or something? Correct. So yeah. having a small ancillary part of it. But okay. I was on the West Coast at the time, so I was going to business school at UCLA. I was basically yeah. living in Los Angeles, and out there, there was a number of gyms. There was a small one called Recreation in Santa Monica okay. that I'd gone to, and then UCLA was one of the first schools to actually have a climbing wall on campus as part of the rec center. So that's where I started climbing, took some Seems lessons like that happens there. a lot. Like with Chenard, remember when Jan Chenard was, you know more than I do, saw all the great colors people were wearing in Europe and brought it to the States, right? And then, like, uh, who was, who's this, who was the founder of Chipotle? Who was the founder of Chipotle? Steve? I forget his name. But he was in San Francisco, and he was like, all these great Mexican restaurants are incredible. I want to open one, but I can't compete with these people, so I'm going to go back to Denver and open up a Mexican restaurant. It was, like, unbelievable, right? You kind of transfer something that is hip in one area and bring it to some place where it's not, which hap- I guess is very similar. Yeah, I mean, climbing in 2005, there was maybe 100, less than 100 even indoor climbing facilities across the entire country. Um, now, fast forward, it's been in the 2020 Olympics, which took place in 2021. Uh, it's been accepted into 2024 in Paris and 2028 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles in the U.S. It's amazing. So, I mean, it takes balls, Lucas, though. How do you know? I mean, you don't know. Nothing's 100% certain. Rock climbing is like that. Is it a circus that no one knows? How are you, out of a scale of 1 to 10, how confident you are when you start this business to go, listen, this is going to take off. I know what is going on more than other people do. You have to have a level of, like, belief that is... Beyond, like, again, our business was more like, okay, it's tennis. We're, I'm busy. I'm successful. I'm going to open it up into some other place. Yours is like a brand new thing. I mean, how, how long did you sit on the idea? Or how, how long, it was very similar. Who's the owner of, uh, oh, my God, Lululemon. Oh, my God. Who's the guy? I can't even remember the guy's name. But he You're said. Founder blanking today. Yeah, the founder of. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, if I hear something three times, I do it. He started a clothes. He was a ski he sewed uh, ski clothes and stuff like that. But then he was in a gym, in a yoga gym, and heard three different times people go, I need clothes, I need this. If I hear it three times, I run a business. And he started it that way in Vancouver. Um, but what, like, how long did it take you to say, all right, I have to do this. This is getting too popular in your brain. I don't think it's this. I didn't have that same kind of moment. Okay. I have a thought process that if you do something you enjoy doing, that you can basically be contagious with that. I mean, I've known friends that have taken a vertical on ice cream trucks and been successful with it. Uh, People that have basically taken the concepts that are even age old that people are doing, or even like yourself with tennis. Like you have, what makes you different? What makes you special? Why come to this club versus go to another club? But if you have somebody who's running it in a, in a, in a better way, yeah. who's basically operating in a little bit, you know, differently than others. I was walking into climbing gyms, I can say, you know, uh, high level or holistically, climbing gyms initially came about as places for climbers to climb during the off season. Yeah. To climb when it gets dark at 4.30 or 5 o'clock and they're after work, they want to get a quick workout in. Climbing gyms would even close certain times of year when outdoor climbers were climbing outside because there wasn't enough business to be had. I 
kind of more so thought of it from a hospitality perspective. I, you know, I, I went to school for hotel administration and hospitality management, kind of taking that aspect, having worked for companies like Disney and Hilton and the Waldorf Astoria, and thought customer service makes the difference of anything. How you're introduced to something. You get introduced to climbing by walking into a climbing gym and some super strong climber who maybe isn't the greatest, you know, even, even as a hiring philosophy, and I'll, I'll come back, but I say as a hiring philosophy, I always look for good-natured people that basically can learn enough about climbing to work for us is is easier and more appropriate than taking a great climber and trying to make him a good person. I totally agree. I mean, I can teach anybody. I get, I like, all the learning is commoditized. You can go on YouTube and learn how to hit a forehand, and then that person can read about it and learn. I could, But if they're a shitty person, it doesn't matter. You're right. Yeah, it's you how you te- relate to people. Yeah. So I saw the piece maybe missing in the market was the customer service aspect to climbing. I climbed and I thought it was phenomenal and I was introduced by somebody who was super nice who basically taught it in in a good way and I felt like wow if you can really kind of scale this and really there was nothing in in Bergen County New Jersey where we opened our first facility there's 900,000 people it's a you know by all means a great demographic it's a suburb of New York City there's a lot of people uh, a lot of athletic people health-minded people and on the west coast there were climbing gyms in existence and in Bergen County New Jersey there was none so I was from that area, maybe for a little bit of safety. I, I knew the area really well, right? I knew the demos, um, and I thought that, you know, run some numbers. Like, this could be something really fun and interesting and exciting to share. Did I know it would be what it would be today? No, you know, but you, you go in head first yeah. and you basically, you know, taking the customer service aspect to it, being a place that's not only for beginners but also for experienced climbers and kind of fill that full spectrum is the way that I looked at it. So I didn't hear it three times that, you know, this was a great idea. I didn't have somebody else tell me. Yeah. I kind of ran through the business plan. I was in business school. I was doing a lot of martial arts. I was doing a lot of yoga. I was very involved in fitness. My mother's a nutritionist, I, you yeah. know, and, and health-minded person growing up, taking vitamins, eating healthy, exercising okay. was always part of my DNA. So I was looking for something within that uh, kind of, you know, overall business genre, if you will. And when I found climbing, I thought, you know, this could be... So do you, after that, do you set some, do you have like, I guess we'll go through goals. We'll go, with this conversation go a thousand different ways. Customer service, we can talk all day about stories about that. But then do you set goals now? Do you set, so you started this thing, did you realize, did you always want a franchise? I mean, how many franchise locations do you have now? Uh, Open operating with eight. Eight. Did you say, all right, I, did you have that kind of strategic plan to say, I want a franchise, or did you just grow and say, hey, I think this is the best avenue? Like, how is your structure plan? I've been reading this book, uh, The 12-Week Year, about setting goals, 90-day goals. How did you do, you, do you do it that way, or does it just kind of happen? You go, wow, this is getting popular. I think we should do this or this, or do you have some sort of a long-term plan starting this business out and say, all right, we're going to franchise, we're going to have some corporate locations, or does it just kind of happen organically I definitely didn't have the whole plan laid out from the beginning okay. uh, by all means uh, a lot of it un- unveils itself as you're going along um, I had the aspiration and thought that it wouldn't be just a one single location yeah. you know operation if it was successful um, didn't know what the timeline of that would necessarily be opened the first location and it took four years to get the second location open and operating yeah. Uh, after that, I was pursuing a third location. Had always known about franchising, just being from the hospitality arena, restaurants, hotels, yeah. the two most popular genres of, of utilizing franchising as a growth mechanism or as a growth model, as well as fitness. Um, so I thought about it and said, you know what, do it once. That's great. Can I do it a second time? And will it be successful? Great. 
let's open a third one and then from there have a foundation to then potentially offer this opportunity to people. We wanted something in an urban area. So we had two suburban locations, our first two. So we pursued the third location to be in an urban area and we had a lease on a space in Hoboken, New Jersey and we lost it um, due to a hurricane coming in and basically flooding out the entire city. Foundation came up, cracked, there was nothing. Had an individual who was a climber with us who had moved out of state to Indiana and moved back to the state of New Jersey but moved to the Jersey Shore area who known that we had thought about franchising. His daughter was on our climbing team. He was driving about an hour, hour and a half each direction twice a week to basically climb with us. It's like there's nothing in the Jersey Shore area. I know you've thought about franchising. Let me be your first franchisee. We thought about doing it ourselves. We went down there and thought about doing it ourselves as a third location and said, like, hey, this is another great market. They are capital-intensive businesses, so there is a lot of capital required to start one. Um, and the daily management of it, still with only two locations, you're – you're still, every day, you're on top of, you know, who uh, yeah. the manager is, who's opening the doors, is there snow outside, did somebody call in sick, what's the temperature inside, you know, HVAC issues, all the daily operational yeah. issues. We thought it was a great opportunity to try uh, with this individual who knew our business, had been climbing with us for years, was living in a geographic that was only an hour and a half away so we could drive to him and to their location to help support them, and that wound up being the precipice of then rolling out now to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California. Um, and this was Sam, right? And this was Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... And he owns three locations now. So that was his. That was our first franchisee and our first franchise location, and he now owns and has three franchise operations. So it's just kind of a feel and instinct. You have two, and you're like, well, you know, we can't probably do this ourselves. We need to... So you, you just kind of... It's your gut instinct, right, to decide yeah, to and say... And keep moving the line forward. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, first it was, let's get a first location open. Then the goal was, can we do this again? We've done it once. Can we do it again? Yeah. You set that short-term goal. Okay, let's do it a third time. Then we had a pivot. We realized that we couldn't do it the third time. We lost that site. We knew it took a long time to find a site. We had this individual with a building that was interested in basically doing it. So we pivoted and started franchising. Then once you franchise a single location, you realize... To be profitable in the franchising world, you need to have at least a, a, a small mass of, if, okay. of locations. You're not going to be a successful franchise with one franchise location. You know, even paying a single dedicated person to service that isn't possible. So it's the, you're, you own corporate locations, and then you spend some of your time helping service your franchisees. You're splitting your own time. You know, we had to have two, three franchise locations before we even hired a dedicated person to be working just in the franchise capacity or in the franchise company, if you will. Huh. How <laughs> How many corporate locations do you think? I mean, this is still instinct. Do you feel like you like is it still instinct you say, "Oh, maybe I want one more, two more." I mean, well my 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 well maybe circle back. My first question was my my original one is, "How many hit and misses do you have?" Because people are always struggling with how hard they work at something. Like in other words, locations. Do you just say do you just keep going? You don't even think about it. You just say, maybe this location is not working out. I can't find something. Or do you just, like, how many of those? Oh, it's always, because it's even quitted to tennis where kids lose, lose a match, lose another match, lose, like, do I quit? Do I do this? Like, how many deals fall through? How many things slip through that you, like, on average, out of 10? Like, how many, like, do you f have a feeling of saying, how hard is it, so to speak, before you get success and tell people, listen, don't quit? Or, there's always that fine line where I tell kids, well, maybe you're just not talented enough and it's a hard conversation. There's that fine line. What do you say, listen, this is just a hard thing. I got to keep doing it. Or maybe this is just not the right avenue to go to in regards to that. Success, I guess, is, <laughs> is one of those words. 
so I've been recently focusing on the fact that uh, happiness and success are not uh, destinations, but trains of thought. Holy shit, you're right. You know what I, I mean? totally so, agree. So uh, to be successful, I, I could forever feel that I'm unsuccessful yeah. because I didn't open enough or fast enough or make enough or as much as that guy or as much as that company or any of those things. Same thing with happiness. So, again, as long as you're not taking money out of your own pocket every month and putting it into the business and essentially losing money that you need to close it down because otherwise you're just digging a bigger hole for yourself, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, you can grow it like as much as you think you can grow it. I mean, you yourself, you have what five tennis courts. You know how many how many hours are they not being used? You know uh-huh. what is your what is your yield management of twelve p.m. to eight a.m. You know what else could you do? Like I open it six o'clock, seven o'clock, or nine o'clock, depending on the given yeah. location. And I'm not at capacity. Like I I you know probably beat myself up more because I think about like restaurant mentality. Amazing. What's my table turn? What's my occupancy percentage like a hotel? And I, if I have a hundred rope stations in the gym and I walk around and only thirty of them are being used right now great i have 60 people in the gym one person belaying one person climbing and to some that's that's great but i can say i'm only at 30 percent occupancy i i'm I i'm i'm failing miserably here you know what i mean so it's a trade lose my mind. What, what is the what is the answer that's um, why the employees good drive drive them crazy it's the same yeah. thing like i'm open 6 a.m i would close at 11 like wait a minute like we could fill four more of these five you know it's the yeah. same thing you're right it's how you look at it. it. It's all in how you look at it. So, I mean, how many hit and misses? I mean, hundreds. I mean, I, yeah. I was just, just earlier today looking at a document or a, a file folder that I have of all, you know, when I say file folder, like in, within a Dropbox Google Drive of all the sites that I look at. So I constantly keep track of all the real estate that I've looked at. So I have it based on state, based on city, and then based on given location. And literally, I have hundreds upon hundreds of sites that I've either been brought to by a real estate broker, been introduced to, have site visited. Some I've actually hired the architect and had measured. You know, sometimes the lease doesn't work out. I Just this week, Monday, was, you know, I had an offer in on a new site to basically open something, and the landlord came back and was just unreasonable in his, his ask and what he wanted and what he expected the space to garner as far as cost and fit up and what he was willing to contribute, and you just have to walk away. I think... Yeah. More so, I, I've finally evolved to a point where I know what the business can sustain. I know what it can afford. I know what need, what it needs to have to basically be successful rather than trying to make things work off of, you know, what they're offering you, if that makes sense. So I think even from a franchising perspective and my own ability to scale, I think that I can walk into a space now or look at the economics of a space, look at the demographics within a 10-mile radius of an area and say that this place will be able to be sustainable and could be successful. Could somebody come in that's a poor operator and still run it into the ground? Every day of the week. Can somebody come (laughs) in and make it even more successful than I can? Probably every day of the week. But I'm no longer looking at a site that's 20% too small and being like, oh, well, I can probably make this work. Like, no, I I have a little bit more hard lines. Like, I looked at some of the buildings that I once looked at. I'm like, why was I even entertaining that? Yeah, yeah. But I had an architect in there. I had, you know, letters of intent submitting over and over and over to this landlord and maybe thank god maybe like, it's it didn't a great work thing out, you know blessing yeah. in disguise that it never even worked itself out so that makes me give me two questions somebody starting a business you know they always say you're going to lose money I, I, don't, I don't agree you should be losing money for too long like how quickly do you make a decision for that person so whether it be you when you start a business and it's losing money for the first how many how quickly do you make a decision to pull something out like 
do you make decisions fast or do you say, hey, look, maybe we should give it this amount of time or window? Somebody's opening up a business for the first time. How soon should they be making money? I think I, like you, have a very different kind of mentality. I mean, the 90% of businesses, in my, in my opinion and from my experience, comes down to the, the property, the yeah. real estate, and then the people and the, and the, and the payroll. Correct. Right? So those, those two Ps are basically the two things that control the lion's share of your cost structure, whether that be 50, 60, 70, 80%. Yeah. Again, depending on what your cost of goods sold are, if you're, if you're inventorying vehicles, as an example, then you have a high asset cost or an inventory cost. But tennis, rock climbing, maybe something in the fitness industry, it's really the property, the rent that you're paying, and the people that are involved. Those are the two big ones. And that's when it comes down to, like, sweat. Uh, you know, the sweat equity of your working there, and maybe you're, you know, you're cutting back your own personal expenses to basically make that all work. But I don't think that you should be losing money ever. You know what I mean? I uh, agree. I agree. Uh, I think from day one, if you have to work for free or you have to work for less than you're worth, then that is one way of looking at, you know, uh, not making as much as you'd like to. But at the same time, if you don't see a very short-term window to paying your rent, paying your yeah. insurance, paying the basic core to be there and keep the lights on, it's, it's I don't think worth it to say, like, okay, if I don't make a hundred thousand dollars month one then i i'm gonna i'm gonna have to shut the lights off or if i can't you know within three months if i can't ramp yeah. up to this number then i'm done I, I think that you're you're starting off in a bad way and i don't <laughs> think you're ever you know getting out from underneath that thumb i think that's why businesses fail i think too many people yeah. take the risk of saying like oh i can ramp up to that number in, yeah. in six months and that's i think why ultimately a lot of these businesses fail because they never do ramp up they to usually that estimate how well they can do and they don't get in reality i think it's maybe this five-year thing, we talked about it a while ago. You're not supposed to make money within five years. Like, is that a professor saying it or somebody from some who's academia <laughs> like, who's never done it? Because if I'm not making money for five years, I'm getting another job within five months. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you, you have to at least see a window. I said maybe the first three or four weeks or maybe you're paying back stuff that you that has a one-time cost. You, you built out the building. All right, I'm going to pay that stuff off. But... You've got to be cash flow positive right away. To me, I don't know. It, to me, it, and especially we can get all, we can get more of a macro thing in 2022. There's no money out there anymore. People have to make money. You can't just raise money anymore. All these businesses and startups. You've got to be able to be profitable because no one can raise any money anymore. That's over with. Where these guys are just raising millions of dollars and billions of dollars. And they're like their market cap is whatever, and they're not making any goddamn money. They're all they're, they're just an idea. It's worth so much money, but I have no revenue. I know there's no revenue. Wait, no well, pre-revenue. That's my favorite word. <laughs> oh, the pre-revenue. <laughs> I have a pre-revenue company. <laughs> I love those. I don't get it, man. I, I don't understand. We were circling back. You were talking about the problem. We were t- I wish I could remember the question. I should have wrote it down, but. Somebody just fell. People are diving for football. Right my insurance diving, is good, Santi. My insurance is good. <laughs> my insurance is good. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, my God. Uh, so what do you think? I'm going to just ask a question about rock climbing. Where do you think it can go? Not even your business, just in regards to this Olympics and all this stuff. Is it going to be a spectator sport? Do you see people watching this on TV? Yeah. I you mean, do. it was in the 2021, or what was the 2020 Olympics that were made in 2021. Um, but it already got accepted and approved into 2024 and 28. So 
the um, viewership was high enough. I don't know the numbers, but the viewership was high enough I was. to basically justify, you know, again, the Olympics are a business, you know, as sure. much as we want to believe it's all about, you know, yeah. goodwill and, and the spirit of, of, of countries competing. There is a need for people to want to watch the sports that are yeah. that are entered to garner television eyeballs and advertising dollars yeah. uh, for commercials in between uh, and sponsorships. So with that being said, I mean... I, it's still in its infancy. I think climbing is very young. Uh, you know, I look at from maybe our youth. Think about, like, when you're a teenager, there was not a yoga studio in every street corner. There was not a martial arts studio in every street corner. There wasn't corner. a coffee place. There wasn't every... a coffee place. So think about the way that the landscape has changed in yeah. that sense. There were traditional gyms, and they were much more, you know, antiquated, you know, mom-and-pop shops. Right, so you had, you know, I, I was laughing. My brother worked out at a place he called Max's Iron Den, and uh, as in high school. And when you got a membership, you got a key, so you went there <laughs> and, you, and you opened the door for yourself. And it was a decent size, yeah. but it was old school, and it was all these independent places. Then you think about like the Gold Gyms came along and started creating a quote unquote chain. Yeah. Look around today, and you have the Planet Fitnesses, the Crunches. All those businesses are yeah. not that old. Or if they are, they were not as big as they are and as household names as they are today. Yeah. So I believe that climbing has the ability to be that mainstream. I think that there's going to be some blend. If you look at the Lifetime Fitnesses or the Equinoxes, they're incorporating some small five, 6,000 square feet of climbing. Yeah. Um, I think alternative fitness like yoga and martial arts have taken off so much. Pilates, you think about all the different offshoots uh, of fitness that have taken you know really root. I think climbing is, is that, and it's, it's still... There's so many places in the United States. If there's 560 total dedicated climbing gyms in the country today, that's only 10 per state. There's 330 lot, yeah. million people. Yeah, yeah, right. You still have a lot of places Supply with demand, population yeah. density that are driving four or five hours to the closest climbing gym. So there's still a lot of white space. So I think, I think there'll be a consolidation at some point where there's still a lot of mom and pop like that old school, you know, traditional gym. Somebody's going to come along and buy up a lot of them, change the flags on a lot of them. I think a lot of a, a number of brands will grow, and then there will be differentiation in yeah. them. Like right now, everybody considers, oh, there's a climbing gym there. They don't say what that gym is. But if you talk about Planet Fitness or Lifetime, you don't – I mean, do you put them in the same pocket? No. No. One's $10, all. one's $150 yeah, a month totally or $200 yeah. a month. Yeah. They're totally different. They offer different services, yeah. different, you know, different look, feel. Everything about them is different. Sure. Um, at their core, they still have treadmills and elliptical machines and weights, but yeah. they're very different places. And I think that that's what will happen. Differentiation will happen. Consolidation will happen. And there will be a couple thousand climbing teams. Yeah. Do you think with pickleball, they're starting pro leagues, right? Do you think rock climbing has that ability to have, like, a professional league, like 12 rock climbing teams that compete against each other? So pickleball's exploded and they're, you know, Tom Brady bought a team, LeBron bought a team. They all think... They're going to strike gold. I think the teams are only a million dollars, and I think they're hoping that they're going to be NBA franchises, right? Do you see something like that? Would people like there be like there's going to be a pick, there was a pickleball draft last May where they drafted these players. They're going to play in a team and blah blah blah. All that. I know it's nice. It's so funny. I was unaware. That's I awesome. Know. <laughs> I know. So that does Rock Coming have that ability? Do you think you could get like I, I, the competitions that I watched are? are fantastically entertaining when I went, we went, when I went over there. So to me, it's just as entertaining as watching pickleball, watching people climb. And it was so fascinating how they found the route, like just anything. I think it's a possibility. Why wouldn't you have rock climbing teams and professional teams? Yeah. And 
I don't know. It'd probably take somebody to put that together. I, yeah. I always equate climbing and with its advent and entrance into the Olympics similar to like gymnastics. Yeah. So gymnastics. I'm thinking here because I'm not 100% sure. Are there teams? No, right? I mean, there's no. national competitions. It goes up through nationals. You have, and that's where climbing is today. Like, we have uh, local competitions. Then there's what we call regional competitions, divisional competitions, which is multi state, and then national competitions, which takes place annually. Okay. Um, it's in many ways a, a young person's sport, like gymnastics. The you know Olympic athletes that are doing gymnastics are usually teenagers. Uh, the best climbers are you know late teens to early twenties. There's certain always always anomalies, and you're never going to find a thirty year old gymnast out there. You might find a thirty plus year old climber out there yeah. because there is a certain amount of skill set um, that you get over time um, and strength that you can maintain. But I don't know. I mean, I think the future is wide open, as my friend Tom Petty would say. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's a possibility that can go the route of, like, pickleball and, and have national teams and yeah. things like that. Or it could go the route of what gymnastics is today and what climbing is just maybe on a bigger scale with national competitions, regional and divisional competitions maybe being televised or having them in larger arenas where people pay to yeah. spectate. Are um, there, like... Are there like uh, the LeBrons of rock climbing? Are people that popular? Or like, are there like rock climbers that people? No, not like there's that. There's just a handful of. Them, handful. I think is where it comes. I mean, it's there's an HBO series that's starting this month. If you saw or didn't see, but like Jason Momoa as a, as an actor is basically also a climber. And okay. It's basically partnered up with Chris Sharma, who's a, one of the few kind of household names within the climbing industry, or as close to a household name as you're going to okay. get in the climbing industry today. Um, and the two of them are doing a, a kind of reality show that was funded by HBO. And okay. it's going to be, a, you know, the best climber. And there's, like, you know, everything from a young teenager to a 50-plus-year-old female who are all basically climbing each week to compete to, you know, win a prize. Um, so I think, you know, as it enters into the household that way, you know, uh, I think there'll be more and more names. But, you know, today... You know, there's a dozen names, but there's always new kids coming yeah, up yeah. because it is this young person sport. You know, if I flipped it to you and say, who's the who's the household name in gymnastics? Uh, what's her? I don't you know. Say it's, always a, year old. it's always a girl, right? It's always it's always a girl that's more popular in gymnastics. Who is yeah. the? But I, I, I know. And it's sad that I, I maybe I equate climbing too much to that sport, but I think that's the way it lives today. Yeah. Okay. You know, you don't know their names in the same way, um, but they're. They're training every day. They're super strong human beings, pound for pound. I mean, climbers yeah. are strongest human beings, I believe, in, in, in any sport. But at the same time, there's yeah. very few that make it to kind of a household name. Oh, you know? but I agree with you on the pickleball side. I, I still I tell people all the time I think it's more of a participation sport than a spectator sport. Now, I could be so wrong and so stupid, but on, on our end with pickleball becoming this crazy popular sport, the key with pickleball is it neutralizes and nullifies a great player's ability to beat somebody that's average. So you can go play somebody and have a good time and compete with a good athlete because they can't do as much. But, you know, Sam Query, all these professional athletes are starting to play pickleball. They're just retiring from tennis and they see an opportunity to play. But watching those great players play, it's not impressive because it's on a smaller court. They can't do physically what they can do on a tennis court. So it's not exciting to watch to me. So I don't know. Usually you watch a sport because you can't do something, and you go, wow, that person's incredible to watch. I don't, I don't see it that way. I see people playing that were not necessarily great athletes, and they couldn't play tennis. It's just the way it was. 
and this gives them an aptitude to play a racket sport right away. I mean, do you see a day when uh, pickleball can fill uh, Wimbledon uh, and have people fill in a stadium to watch people play? For two weeks? I just don't think so. I could be, again, I could be the stupidest person on earth. I don't see 30,000 people watching pickleball. I, I don't know. Um, Santi, you want to jump in? Do you think you see people, 30,000 people watching pickleball? Mm, that's a lot. I would say, you know, maybe 5,000 max. Like a small stadium. I think we get a little crazy, like Peloton, all these new things that come in, all these, you know, spinning and things. But tennis and these things, they've been around for, you know, they're doesn't mean that they can't go away or have less, but it's very, you know, it's tough. Like, they need to get, like, Serena and give her, like, $3 million to play five events just to make it popular. But I don't think she's going to take it seriously but either. If you think about bowling, right, there's huge bowling tournaments in Vegas all yeah. the time. Hundreds and thousands, well, thousands of people watch it all the time, especially on ESPN all these things. Yeah. I think it'll get to that level. Um, but I don't know if people will be traveling the globe playing pickle in, like, Abu Dhabi, Wimbledon area, you know. I don't know. There won't be, like, an, I don't think there's going to be, like, an Australian Listen, I could be way off. The NBA was a dying league in the 50, in the 60, whatever. And now their teams are worth billions of dollars. Like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm not confident enough to say, but my first instinct to say is it's not exciting to watch. Now, maybe I'm just coming from a tennis perspective. But I will say on, like, social media, there's a lot of pickle that shows up on my phone. And there are... And in, in, those, in those videos, too, there's a lot of people on the sidelines just watching these things. Just, you know, chilling in the sun, just watching and, like, cheering people on. It's, you know, but there's only, like, a couple, like, 100 people, you know, that I did see that Indian Wells tournament where that... They, Indian Wells, which hold, hosts... Uh, a, a, a Masters 1000 tournament in uh, in Palm Springs tennis tournament. They built this big pickleball facility. They had a tournament there, and it was pretty packed. I mean, but Palm Springs is beautiful. It's a beautiful destination. Like people just love to go there too. So I think it'll be more know. of a like a vacation thing where like retired people will go watch the tournament, play a little bit, watch more tournaments, play, play. Some I think more, they need a sponsorship money, Luke. It's just like anything yeah. else. They need IBM. Michelob beer. They need all these huge people to put a ton of money in it. And then all of a sudden the prize money goes up because some of the best pickleball players in the world make, you know, a hundred grand, right? And they're traveling all over the place. It's nice, but there's no money there right now. So it's going to be hard. They're going to have to infuse a ton of money in. But, but you can also get, you know, pretty famous earlier now just by winning a couple of local tournaments. I think that's how a lot of the, the newer guys got, they got famous by just yeah. playing tournaments what and is winning. Fame? What is, there's nothing worse than being famous and making no money. Yeah. That's the worst thing. Imagine being famous have, and being know, broke. sponsorships and that stuff. Sucks. And eventually other brands will reach out, you know, like Nike. And, I'm kind of being, uh, being a pain in the ass. But, yeah, I get it. But it may take a long time. It may take these people who are popular another 10 years before they see really any real money. I don't know. But we're digressing. You're not going to get, like, a million-dollar deal with Nike. You might get, like, 500K or something. Yeah. Is there an educational side to the, the pickleball as an offshoot sport, though? Uh, as, I mean, can you, can you give somebody lessons and make them that much better? I, I simplistically, looking from the outside, think of hatchet throwing. Uh, you know, throwing throwing beanbags in holes, cornhole, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, those are now televised. They're on ESPN. You're right. Those two sports, there is not a collective group of T 
teachers, of mentors. You, you play and you get better. Some people just wake up one day and are good at it. Somebody could walk along tomorrow and be better than the best cornhole player. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, as a sport, if there really is milestones and true fitness and skill set involved with the sport, then I think it has the capability to basically eventually grow, be an Olympic sport, be basically better because you have individuals as mentors then that can go back and teach. And, you know, I don't know that I would ever pay anybody for a cornhole lesson. I don't know if you guys would. (laughs) I don't don't know that I would pay anybody for a hatchet throwing lesson other than the first five minutes showing me how to hold it and where to stand. Yeah, not hurt myself, yeah. But other than that, you're not paying somebody for regular lessons like you do in tennis. So I guess the question I'm flipping to you is, is there is there a skill set? Are you teaching pickleball, or are you just playing? And by playing, you're getting better. I think, I think, uh, obviously, there's more of a, a skill set to teach in tennis, but you can still teach some skills in pickleball. Sunday teaches lessons, so you can. So it's a little different, but you can. It's very. It is more similar to hatchet throwing and the cornhole in the sense of you teach people the rules, you teach them how to play. Most of the time, they just want to play. So right now, eighty or ninety percent is just open play, and they want to play. They, you teach them some lessons when they want to learn enough to get into those open plays and play. So that's really an aptitude just to play. They're not there until it gets into high schools and they're playing and there's tournaments for kids. Then they'll want lessons to get better at playing that. But until then, until it gets into that school system, until it gets into, like, say, the USTA of pickleball where there's a 12 and under tournament and the kid needs to get better, that's not happening yet. Until that happens. There's a, there's a litmus, too, when people start offering money to college. and Once colleges adopt it, and now there's an opportunity to get a scholarship, let's that's say, it. to a university well, that's why lacrosse to play blew up. Yeah. A, a particular sport, that's when, that's when everything changes. Yeah. And then once people see, yeah, scholarships, like how many fencing scholarships people want? Because there's not many of them, and, you know, it's, it's the same thing. So one, if it gets into like there was one intramural college team, once that starts... Those 12 tennis players are going to want to get pickleball scholarships, so you'll take the 12 tennis players that have scholarships. They'll take a few of those, and then there'll be some room for tennis, too, and some room for pickle. So, I don't know. But last question for you before we have to run off. You're a busy man. How's the process now with scaling and expanding? So how do you deal two ways? People, uh, employees, and then scaling and saying how do you do you have a bunch of realtors that bring you stuff are you still looking or are you just got people that just bring you stuff all the time hiring are you always hiring you're always looking at people in regards to employees how's the churn rate so those two questions uh as far as employees and hiring i mean uh from a line level perspective, I guess you could say we're always hiring. Like we have a fairly, you know, robust staff at all of our locations where there's, you yeah. know, there's just natural turnover for just basic instructors, front desk staff, and things like that. Uh, management and leadership, not as much of a turn. Um, I think it's healthy to always have a little bit of turn going on to bring in fresh ideas. You know, sometimes people get stagnant in the fact that I have a large team but a small number of full time salaried employees that basically are, you know, working full-time plus. Um, so they can be a scenario where you know, an assistant manager gets a role and they're there for a certain period of time and they're, they're not any management roles opening up or general manager roles opening up or something above to basically move up, you know, quote-unquote, a, a ladder of sorts. Um, so there's attrition because of that. Um, 
But overall, I mean, trying to make it a fun place to work, overall it's not, you know, it's not working in an office. It's, yeah. it's You're working in a climbing gym, you know, try to hire properly that, you know, you know it's an operations job. You're on your feet. You're dealing with people all the yeah. time and all the things that go with that. Um, How is the, in regards to benches now and staffing, and is it harder now? I mean, I was having trouble finding people because of this whole, COVID thing, people didn't want to come back to work, people want to, you know, they, no one seemed to want to come back to work. It seems like maybe this recession is coming and people are going to need jobs. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. Was it hard no, to I, find people? I felt people? a huge turn in the tides in the last, like, three months uh, where, you know, I was putting out, I had roles that were available, you know, management roles are available for six, nine months. Yeah. And now, you know, I put something out, I get two or three applicants it's within gone. a week. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm finding a really big really big pivot since like November okay. uh, till today. Um, even with the line level positions. Well, you that know, would we make sense. We had a lot sense. of just sitting on the, li- on the sidelines not looking to work. And Again, I have my own philosophies on all that just as far as like high schoolers not being pushed out into the workforce as they maybe were pre-COVID. Yeah, Parents, yeah. for whatever reason, just not, not pushing them out to get that first job or over-programming them more, whatever's hap- whatever was happening there, uh, there just wasn't a pool of people. Well, I think we um, printed a ton of money. People had a lot of money, too, and they were, like, not in a rush because they were getting checks. Yeah. Once those checks stop and that funny money's out of the system, it's going to be, you know, there's layoffs. Once companies start laying off people like they're doing, it starts to change. The company yeah. has the leverage. You're like, okay, 11000 you're out of here. Amazon, boom, and they start laying off people. It just starts to change everything. Yeah, Salesforce, Amazon, you start seeing all those big, you know, tech layoffs and all that stuff going on. It's, yeah. it's going to create more Because it goes down the chain to me. All those people that were like, oh, I can make 50 grand on Amazon myself selling stuff. Amazon's raising those rates, too. Those people's VIG is less. They don't make 50 grand anymore, these kids selling stuff on Amazon. They make 30, now they need a job. All of that goes all the way down the chain, so everybody needs jobs. Yeah. That's what happens, so... And then uh, real estate side, yeah. uh, I mean, we choose markets that we're looking for and then okay. usually deploy people to look for sites in those markets. But at the same time, I still have people daily coming at me, you know, unsolicited, just, hey, here's a building I thought of you or, hey, I've been to your site before and I'm a broker and I saw this site or even, I mean, the ones I find amusing and that I actually really enjoy are like, hey, I was up in your area over the holidays visiting some family. I live in Florida, and I just came back, and I saw a four-lease sign on a building down the block and has really tall ceilings. Would you think about opening a climbing gym down I here? Know, I know. It's so so it's like, well, I mean, deep down, right, they had such a good time. They want it, yeah. they want it for their neighborhood they, or their they, community, they and they're reaching out the whole... to say, you know, hey. So, I mean, yes, still get, still get those all the time. Or you get people that walk into the building. Remember you tell me, oh, yeah. whoa, nice shot. <laughs> that was close. I can do this. Remember they walk yeah. in, oh, I could, I could do this. No problem. <laughs> no, no problem at all. No problem. Yeah. It's easy. Lucas, thanks, man. Pleasure. It's great to talk to you, my friend. <laughs> this guy's the best. Super successful. I did this for my own reasons because I like to ask him questions and get advice. This guy's a legend. Thanks, you guys. Remember, play, do something, take an action, rock climb, play tennis, do anything. It solves a lot of problems. Less medication, more action. Thank you. Awesome. He's the best. Hey, everybody. Hope you like the podcast. Please share it with your friends, anybody that you know, anybody that's into tennis, anybody that's into bettering themselves. Share it.